0: mic to talking mic. Switching over notes from singing notes to talking notes. I'll get there. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 18. Luke 18, we're looking at verses 9 through 14 today. I was actually drawn to this passage um, some time ago. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to uh, preach a lesson in youth group on, uh, on self righteousness. I did this in the first service too. Self righteousness. This is the word. It's all about self righteousness. I had a lesson. To, I had an opportunity to teach a lesson on self righteousness, and and uh, and we we went to this passage. And it, it, it's the passage where Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the and and at a a brief reading in our time frame, looking at it, the Pharisee just kind of looks like a jerk, and he's 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 self righteous and obnoxious. And I I thought you know what a great passage to dive into to 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 study it out because self righteousness is is terrible, it's horrible. We all understand it's terrible because we 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 know those people, those those obnoxious people. And but you know we all struggle with it, right? It's a sin that we all struggle with. And I thought you know what a what a preachable sin that I could preach on. Um, but as, as is so often the case, when you, when you come at a text thinking how you want to handle it, and you start digging into it, you, you have to take a step back. You have to start over how you're looking at it and, and, and try to read it with the understanding of what Jesus was trying to communicate, what, what Luke, as the author of the gospel passage here, was, was trying to let the words of Christ communicate. And, and I, don't think it's, I don't think it's what we think of as self-righteousness that he's dealing with. In a sense it is, but, but I think when we take a, take a step back and... And look at what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this parable. I think the first thing we have to do is look look at this parable in the light of the whole gospel. Shortly after his telling of this parable, we, we see Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying on the cross, not in vain. He died on the cross for the sins of every Christian, of every person who ever has come to him for forgiveness. He died on the cross for the sins of the people that are in this parable. I think I think the gospel story, especially the gospel story, needs to always be read in light of what the cross is doing. John Piper puts it, the cross casts a shadow across the entire gospel stories and across the entire Bible. When we understand what the cross is, it helps us understand what, what the redemptive work is happening in this passage. The Gospels, the Gospels are presented in a way that you know the end from the beginning. You think about the writers of the Gospel. They were living in their, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were living in the first century, right? They remembered Jesus with them. And they were part of the church. Some of them were apostles, but they were there with the apostles who were speaking authoritatively about what Christ did, about the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. They all knew the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, very simply, is the good news of Jesus Christ's birth, death on the cross for our sins, resurrection, and promised return. That's very simply what the gospel is. Gospel, literally translated, means good news. The good news, the good story of Jesus Christ. So these gospel writers, the biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote their biographies, not necessarily to first-time present to people, but they, they had in mind people who had already known the truth. Of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That doesn't mean that somebody couldn't for the first time pick up the book of John or the Book of Luke and read it. And, and obviously, if they do that for the first time, they're going to they're going to get a, a true and good presentation of the story of Jesus Christ. That's that's true. But when they wrote it, they had in mind people who already knew the gospel. And we see this throughout throughout their writing. Obviously, just as Danette read this morning in John 1, uh, Jesus was called the word and he was came he, he, had, he came and he was not received. You know, they they foreshadowed all of this at the very beginning of the story. This is not a typical, like when you read a novel, you don't have you don't have the, the climax and conclusion packaged into the first paragraph of the novel. But that's that's how the gospel writers wrote it. And and I think it's awesome. But I mean you look through you look through Matthew. In Matthew, the uh, the angel says to Joseph, Mary is going to bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from, his, from their sins. This is, this, is, this is not just foreshadowing. This is explicit. Hey, this is what he is going to do. Luke, the, the Christmas story that we just, we just heard. When the shepherds came to the angels, they said, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. When he was born, he was just a baby. You know, but what was he going to be? He was going to be the Savior of all mankind. This, this, this explicit statement of who he was going to be. Even John the Baptist, at the beginning of, of his book, wrote uh, when, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. You know, this, this was stated ahead of time, authoritatively from the mouths of angels, from the mouths of prophets, who Jesus was, what he was accomplishing. And, and, it's, and what he accomplishes is important through the entire, uh, the entire story of his life. Every piece of instruction that Jesus gives in his Gospels is, is for people who are going to be very likely seeing his, his death and resurrection for their salvation. Every, every, uh, every time Jesus pardons somebody, he doesn't, he just, you know, the, I think of the... Uh, the woman who was accused of adultery, who, who the, the religious leaders wanted to stone. And Jesus effectively, effectively pardoned that woman by dismissing her accusers and then telling her to go and sin no more. He did that based on the authority of his, death and res- his coming death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection, his payment for sin, paid for all sins forever previous and forever after. Those sins that were pardoned in the gospel were done so by the cross. The cross casts a shadow back over the entirety of the gospel story. The gospels were written with the expectation that the the reader already knew the story of the gospel and and should be viewed through that lens, the lens of Christ's dying on the cross for these people that he's talking to. But, But Jesus specifically tells this story, tells this parable, to to people who are in the shoes of the Pharisee. They are are the self-righteous people. So let's go ahead and read it right now. Um, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. Uh, Follow along if you can. It says, He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. So this is who he was talking to. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So he's telling this story to people who are in the shoes of the Pharisees. He's telling this story to self-righteous people. I think, I think he's probably telling this to disciples as well as other, and he's, he's including his disciples in this category of people who are self-righteous because a couple pages after this in your scriptures, we see the disciples arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. It says, they argued, who's going to sit on the right hand of Jesus when they get before the, like, like these guys, these guys think a lot of themselves. I think he's including disciples and other people who are standing around who are self-righteous, who are trusting in their own works for forgiveness. So this is who he's writing to, but I think, I think it wouldn't be an overstep to say he's writing to all of us because all of us have a tendency in our natural selves, to trust in our own goodness. All of us have a tendency to, to stand on our own works as a platform of, of why we are a good person. And even if, we, even if we've ultimately trusted in Jesus Christ as, ourself, as our Savior and, and, and trust in Him, I think we have a tendency to go back to that. We have a tendency to go back to trusting in our own works, trusting in, in who we are rather than trusting in Jesus. So I think think he's writing to his disciples, he's writing to sinners, he's writing to us uh, as he's telling this parable. So there's there's three, three characters in this parable. There's the tax collector, who is a sinner. There is the Pharisee, who in first reading is a jerk. And then there's God. God is the one whom they are praying to. God is the one whom offers justification. God is the central character of this story. They are praying to God. I think as we look at these two other characters, we have to to take a step back from our first reading. Our first reading, it looks like a humble dude and a jerk. But I I think that's not quite how it read originally. When Jesus was telling this story, um, we, we talked about this in church a couple of weeks ago, but a tax collector was not just, uh, we think of our own understanding of what a tax collector is, right? An IRS agent. None of us like hearing from the IRS. None of us like, well, except for, you know, shortly after like March or May when they send our own money back to us. We like them then for some reason. None of us like, you know, dealing with the IRS because, because they're the government, they take our money, right? That's, that's no fun. But, but our IRS agents are working for our government, are working for us. Doesn't feel like it, but they are. They're working for us. They are taking this money from us to use it for General good for roads, for infrastructure, for and you know we're not gonna like all the things that they spend it on and 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 we could break it down, but they 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 put that money back into our country, our good. And and let's be honest, when we when we're frustrated at at the IRS, we're not frustrated with the person we're dealing with. We're frustrated with the bureaucracy. We're frustrated with the. The, the whole system. This, this is not like the tax collectors of this day. The, the tax collectors in the, the Bible times were, were, were betrayers. Like imagine if you would, God forbid, the 1940s went differently. Imagine if you will, that, that Nazi Germany was successful in their attempts to conquer the world. And... And we are living under the rule of Nazi Germany today. We're, we're still a country, we're still organized, but we have to, we have to abide by the rules that Nazi Germany... Like, this is a terrible thing, right? We're, we're all like... Uh. Now imagine, if you will, your next-door neighbor goes and contacts the, uh, the Nazi government in Germany applies for a job and gets a job where he goes around to your door and says, hey, you owe me money. I got to take it back to Nazi Germany. We're giving it back to the Nazis. Like this is, like all of a sudden, th- this person is not on your same page. Like they're not, they're not a fellow American who's suffering. They're a betrayer. They're someone who has, who has fraternized with the enemy. They are the people who are doing evil in this world. That's exactly what the tax collectors were for the first century Jewish people. They had signed contracts with the Roman government that they were going to take the money of their fellow Jews and send it back to Rome. They were hated and, and they very often were given the authority to take extra off the top to line their own pockets. They were, given, they, they were protected by the Roman soldiers and, and they were outcasts from their people because they had betrayed the Jews. They had betrayed God's people. And, and, and think about it. The Jews saw themselves as, the, as a nation being promised redemption from God. You know, being promised deliverance by God. And not only had these people denied their nation, they had denied their God. You know, in the minds of the people, there is no greater horrible person. There is no horrible person more horrible than, than a tax collector. They are the worst. And I think the, the Pharisee is also misportrayed. Because as Christians, we, we understand Pharisees as the people who Jesus fought against, right? We, we look back and constantly he's, he's butting heads with the Pharisees. But this this Pharisee, this religious leader, well, he stood up in front of church and he prayed. Certain things that we know are true because you're not going to stand in front of people and pray falsehoods when people can see your life. So what did he pray? He prayed, God, thank you that I am not like a sinful person, like other men that that are sinful. Thank you, thank you that I am not an extortioner, that I'm not unjust. Thank you that I'm not adulterous. Like he's saying, listen, I'm faithful in my marriage. I'm honest in my business dealings. And then he goes on. He's he's uh, he's devout. He, he's faithful in his devotion to his his faith. What does he say? He 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 fasts twice a week. He he tithes on everything he gets. This guy is 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 morally upright and devout in his religion. And then the other thing, he gives credit to God, like. Like all this, like he's, he's, he's standing up and saying thank you God for this goodness in me. Right? I know that it, this was not from me. So, so the heresy here is plagianism. If, someone's a, if someone commits the heresy of plagianism they believe that the goodness in themselves comes from themselves. It's heresy it's, it's, it's wrong. He doesn't do that. He says God is the source of the goodness in me. I I am a good person because of what God has done in me. You know, he's he's in first reading, he seems like a jerk. He's really kind of expressing his goodness and thanks to God for his goodness. But the the fact is, all of these things that are good in him, the the failure comes not when he he boasts a little bit, not when he not when he's st- speaks out loud the failure comes when he is trusting in those good things trusting in his own morally uprightness trusting in his own devotion instead of the one that he should have been devoted to many of you have likely watched uh, or at least heard of The Princess Bride how many of you have watched The Princess Bride it's a fantastic movie maybe the best movie ever um, I'm listening to a book right now. Uh, it's, it's the making of the film Princess Bride by Carrie Elwes. He's the, he's the actor that portrays Wesley. The book is called As You Wish. Um, it's a very interesting read. Uh, but he, he, he tells, in this book, he tells the preparation for his famous fight scene between him and Inigo Montoyo, the, the, the Spaniard, the swordsman. Um, and he talks about how much, how much preparation went into this fight scene. Um, the book that the movie is based on describes this fight scene as the greatest sword fight in modern history. And the directors of the film wanted to, wanted to make this sword fight great, visually great, and not cheat as they can do on films. Because many times in fight scenes you'll see quick cuts from side to side and and like one punch and then it cuts and 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 actors only have to remember or memorize one or two moves at a time and they can cut it and splice it all together and make the fight scene look look good but the the director's wanted to make this a great and epic fight scene uh to stand alone and and you can see the finished product of the movie, the, the sword fight's awesome. They, they, you know, the camera's backed up. You see their, their footwork, their sword fighting and, and it's, it's silly at times but the sword fighting is is quite, it's epic. It's a great sword fight. Watch the movie. We should have a watch party. We're not going to have a watch party. Um, but Carrie, the problem was, Carrie Elwes, he didn't. he was an actor. He didn't know how to sword fight. They wanted to have an epic sword fight but he was not a sword fighter. So they brought in a an expert. They brought in uh, a man named Peter Diamond, along with some other experts. Peter Diamond was an Olympic fencer, um, and he had he had choreographed other fight scenes. He he did the uh, the lightsaber fights in Star Wars. He did the Indiana Jones sword fights. He did many other things. He was a master teacher and choreographer of fight scenes. He was a master. He was good at his job, and Carrie always. Uh, talked about how the first day of practicing, how he was, he was finishing up his first day of practicing and his muscles were aching, but he was, he was getting a good feeling about it, right? He was starting to understand what he was supposed to do. He, 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 he understood some of the, the intricacies of sword fighting and, and different things. And he was starting to have confidence when Peter Diamond and one of the other uh, trainers picked up the swords and demonstrated an incredibly complex fight scene, and it says it left him just completely overawed. He just couldn't believe how how awesome this fight scene was. Peter, the the swordmaster, then told Carrie that this was the first of several scenes that he would na- need to act out. Uh, and that they would be spending many of the next weeks doing nothing else but practicing this sword fighting. And then even once the filming started, they said every, every break that they had in, the, in the, the filming, they'd pick up swords and practice the sword fencing, the sword fighting, to get better at it. Said put just enormous, enormous effort into figuring out how to do this. So even though, even though Carrie had gained some ability as an actor, you know he, he, he knew how to hold his sword. He knew how to, to, to parry and thrust and different things. And, and in truth, even though these skills had come to him from a master swordsman, if he took that first day of sword training and tried to create a, master sword, a, a, a great sword fight with that, he would have failed as a sword fighter and as an actor because, because it takes a master to make a fight scene into something great. You can't simply take some skills that have been given to you and do it good. He had to trust, he had to trust the master to create the fight scene. He could not do it on his own. Even with the skills that had been imparted to him, it took, it took much more work and it took... It took a master hand shaping how it was going to turn out before it was something good. All too often we see goodness in ourselves and we say, I'm good enough. Or, or we say, see what God has done in me? Or see what God has done through me? That's that's sufficient. That's, that's good. That's, there is goodness in me. And, and and it's not wrong to recognize those. But what we have to do is not ever let our trust be in that goodness, be in that ability, be in that, that, that thing that God has done in us. Always keep our trust in Christ himself. God gives us ability. God gives us goodness. Uh, God gives us the opportunity to, to be, be religious in a good way. You know, be faithful to church, tithe, whatever it is. But but our trust can't be in that. Our trust has to be in the one who provides justification, has to be in the person of God who who, who offers salvation. When we look at the tax collector who beat his breast, who cried out to God, be merciful, God, to me, a sinner. You know, we say... Well, you know, it's easier for him because he had no righteousness of his own to rely on. He's down here with no good thing in him to distract him from who God is. And that's exactly the point. It is easier for him because he has nothing of his own. But none of us have anything of our own that is worthy of us standing on for trust. None of us have anything... None of us have anything, any good work or any, any, any righteousness or goodness or ability or devotion which can, can provide a groundwork for us to stand on and say, this is why I'm good. Whenever we hold those things up, they become filthy rags. They become nothing. They're like a man who is standing on the edge of a cliff ready to go base jumping, And he looks at his clothes and he says, these are really good clothes. I wore these clothes to an interview and I got the job. These are really good shoes. I wore these in a basketball game in high school and I made the game-winning point. These are good clothes. And he jumps off the cliff trusting in his clothes. It doesn't make sense. It's not it's not something that is worthy of trust. It has no framework for adding value. Our goodness cannot save us. Our, our ability cannot save us. Our, our appearing religious cannot save us. Only, only a parachute can save a person who is base jumping. And as a person who is a sinner only a divine work of forgiveness, only a, a God who is capable of forgiving can save our soul from the penalty of sin. This is, this is where the climax of the parable comes in. Verse 14. Verse 14, it says, I tell you this, this is Jesus talking after the parable, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This tax collector, this sinner who had no good works to his name, who had no goodness, a thief and a swindler, he humbly placed his trust in what Jesus could do for him. Nothing about his own strength, nothing about his own ability, humbly placed his trust in God for his forgiveness. However, the Pharisee, the Pharisee did not receive justification. How how awful these words, these four words, rather than the other. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee went down to his house without justification. Without salvation. Because his trust was in his own righteousness rather than placing his trust in the only one who can provide life-changing righteousness. How much clearer it should be for us. These, These people who are fictional people. It's a story that Jesus is telling. These people could not have seen the cross. They eventually did. But when Jesus was telling to these these self-righteous people, these disciples and other people who were standing there, they did not know the cross. They did not know the payment that Jesus was going to make on the cross for them. They did not know the gospel, the story. They didn't have it. They knew that God was sovereign. They knew knew who Yahweh was. They knew that Jesus was the Son of God, but they didn't have the full grasp of what the gospel is. That's what we have. We understand what it was that Jesus came. We understand what he did on the cross for us because it's spelled out in Scripture. What great opportunity we have to place our trust in him and what he did how much clearer it should be for us than it was for them. We have the entire revealed gospel of Christ which allows us to see the act of sacrifice. It provides forgiveness and justification. And we can see it through demonstrated through the crucifixion. His his worthiness of our placing our trust in him is so very obvious. God is worthy of our trust. He has demonstrated that and he demands it. When we when we say thank goodness I have God has allowed me to not struggle with this sin. Thank goodness that I am I'm good enough in this area. Thank goodness that that man I'm I'm not like that other person who 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 is so obnoxious, we have a tendency to fall back on our own good works and fail to trust God for our growth. So, so there's two steps here. There's, there's the first time we ste- we trust God ultimately for our salvation. But, but when we do that, we still have a tendency to go back and trust on our own feet, trust on our own good works. And, and when we do that, when we fail to trust in him for our own, for, for our growth, for our spiritual growth, then we fail to grow. We have to set aside our good works. It's fine to have good works. It's important. We must have good works. We must be faithful in our devotion. But we have to set those things aside and realize our trust, our confidence, our, our steadfastness going forward in our spiritual lives can only be done on the groundwork of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We thank you for your demonstration for us, what it means to have faith and have that faith in someone who is worthy of that faith. We thank you for what you did on the cross. We thank you for salvation, forgiveness, justification, being made as if we are not sinners, the deliverance from the penalty of sin. We are not deserving, we are not worthy, but you, Lord, are worthy of our trust, and that's all you ask from us. We pray that you would give each one of us the strength and the clarity to know how and know when to trust you every day. We praise you, Lord. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.